And as Doug just said, I've been uh, part of Alliance Bible Fellowship for about 10 years now. And most of the time I'm in the back. And a lot of times I'm actually in the technical booth and don't I wish I was there right now? <laughs> just kidding. Uh, and I've been looking at the backs of your heads for 10 years now. This is by far your better half, let me tell you. Scott's blessed to be up here, and we're thankful for Scott, aren't we, that uh, we've got uh, such faithful pastors who week after week after week bring us the Word of God, and, and the other pastors as well as, who so faithfully serve us, and we're glad that we can have them have some time off. Um, let me just tell you, too, a word to those of you who sit in the back all the time. I want you to know that I sit in the back, and now look where I am now. And, uh, you know, the Bible has some truths about that, so look out. Scott is always looking in the back row to see how he can get you involved, and the other pastors as well. But setting that aside, let me introduce myself just briefly so you have a little bit of background in myself. The Lord's called me to serve him at Samaritan's Purse. Been doing that for 10 years. Happy to be a part of that team. Prior to that, I lived in St. Louis, Missouri. I was the director for missionary formation for a conservative, one of the conservative Lutheran denominations, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and I prepared missionaries to get them ready to go, and then after they arrived on the field, I supervised them for about two years to settle them in. That was my responsibility. Enjoyed that service that God gave me to do. Prior to that, I uh, worked as a pastor in Laramie, Wyoming. God called me to do that. Prior to that, I was a missionary in Papua New Guinea, serving the Enga people in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Wonderful memories about that as well. When Pastor Scott asked me a, couple, a number of months ago, it must have been about April, he asked me to do it, and I prayed about it. And when I said yes to him, I also had a kind of a follow-up. I said, you know, I'm a Lutheran pastor, and in Lutheran circles, we only preach for 15 minutes. That's all people let me get away, let us get away with. I told them, uh, I said, you know, after about 15 minutes, they start checking their watches. And uh, Scott said, oh, don't worry about that. He says, they do that at ABF to me too, but I just ignore them and keep pushing on. <laughs> but, uh, of course, we know that uh, that doesn't happen, do we? His messages are so good. And they seem to fly by in 10 minutes, not in, uh, in 15 minutes. But uh, I pray that uh, today uh, God would encourage you as well, uh, despite his absence. When I was thinking about the topic that I would choose, I didn't want to continue on with what he does because what he does is so good. I, uh, I wanted to come up with something that I could speak on for two weeks. And uh, I came up with the idea of talking about Holy Communion. Next week we'll celebrate Holy Communion. And I've been meaning to sit down and in greater depth study this topic. And I thought two weeks would work out just very well for me to actually dig deeper and present some insights that God was laying on my heart and do it in a, a little more uh, in-depth kind of way. So I chose the topic of Holy Communion. Next week we'll celebrate Holy Communion together. I'll be here as well. And these two messages will then flow into that time where we as God's people We'll spend some time in that special activity that God has given to his people to encourage us. And my hope and prayer is as a result of what we talk about today and what we talk about uh, next week, uh, that that activity that we do together will be a greater encouragement and more meaningful you, to you in your walk in the Lord. Now, the, the basis of our message is, is a very short phrase 
but I want to read the bigger context. I'd like to read the context in which Jesus instituted this thing called Lord's Supper. And uh, the fullest expression of that is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and following. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to that, what I'd like to do is read that so you have the full context. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. What we're going to look at for the next two weeks is just two short phrases in that section of Scripture. Two identical phrases. It appears twice. One in verse 24, one in verse 25, one in the context of the breaking of the bread, which is linked to the breaking of his body, the other verse in the, in the, the cup, which is indicating the shedding of his blood. It's that little phrase, do this in remembrance of me. But what I want to do is, is I want to adjust that a little bit because the Greek translation is a little bit different and I think it's a little bit better because there's more ambiguity to the translation of it. And that is, instead of saying, do this in remembrance of me, the closer the, the Greek translation is, do this in my remembrance. And there's a reason why I want to do that and I'll get to that in a few moments. But uh, we're going to look at this phrase and we're going to do it in two parts. Next week, we're going to look at the do this part, and this week, we're going to look at the in my remembrance. And hopefully, as we talk about remembrance in the biblical context and what it is that we do in Holy Communion, uh, the two will come together and you'll be encouraged in your walk in the Lord. But of course, if we're going to talk about in my remembrance, we need to talk about remembering. And I'd like to talk about that for a few moments. There's really two significant aspects of human existence when it intersects, when it intersects with this concept of remembering. I'd like to talk about both of them. Remembering is a part of living. God's given us the capacity to remember. From what I understand, I'm no animal scientist, but from what I understand, animals can't remember. They can't look into the past, but we human beings can, and the result is, is our lives are richer as a result. For example, I remember very, very clearly the birth of my two sons. My first son was born in Wyoming, uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. It was in the middle of a blizzard. And the blizzard came and my water, wife's water broke. She didn't immediately rush to the hospital because the contractions didn't start. I remember all of that. I remember that when we got to the hospital, the doctor chewed us out for not coming right away. I remember I got mad back at him. I remember that the labor didn't start and didn't get regular, so they had to induce her. I remember in my mind what her room looked like. I remember in my mind what the delivery room looked like. I remember how hot I was with the mask and the hat on. I remember I had to sit down before I fell down. And they were looking after me while they were trying to deliver my son. When he was born, they whisked him off to another table on the side, did his APGAR scores, whisked him off again, 
went, cleaned him, wrapped him in a towel, gave him his shots, put his drops in his eyes, I guess, I wasn't there, and then wrapped him up, put him in an incubator. I went and found him a little bit later on. I remember all those things, and my life is richer because of it. I remember the birth of my second son, completely different. I was in Papua New Guinea, a South Pacific island country. It was hot. We were on the coast. Uh, we uh, went into labor. We went to a hospital that was anything but modern. Uh, it wasn't clean. It wasn't staffed well. It didn't have any of the equipment. Uh, I remember all of that. I remember the delivery room. I remember the Australian doctor who was talking to us in English, but we didn't understand 50% of what he said. I remember all of that. He was born very quickly. I remember the nurse set him down on a, a metal kind of cart and didn't wrap him in a towel. I remember saying, you got to do something with this boy. He's cold. I remember she gave him a shot, put the drops in his eyes. She wrapped him in a towel, handed him to me. I remember going back to the room, putting him on her, and then looking for a wash basin, a scale, and a tape measure because they didn't wash him, they didn't weigh him, they didn't, do a, they didn't measure him. So we got to wash him, and we got to weigh him, and we got to measure him. And wow, I remember those things. And the memories make my life so much richer, these good memories that I have. And I know all of you have good memories like that in various ways that influence your life and make you richer. We also have the capacity to remember things that aren't good. Thank goodness we don't remember the minutiae of life. I don't remember who, who irritated me on the road, you know, a while back. I don't care about that. But there are other memories that aren't so good. But still, they're good to remember because they're meaningful. I remember the day, some of you know, uh, that my wife died about five years ago because of cancer. She collapsed in the morning. I remember what happened. I remember arriving at the hospital. I remember what the doctor said to me. I remember that whole day long. I remember the decisions I made, some of the decisions that I made uh, that I regret now during the course of that day. I remember the moment she died. I remember those hard things, but it's good that I remember them because that makes my life rich and I'm glad that I remember them, not only the good but also the bad because that's life. And even in the bad things, God is active and, and we see God in it. And it's good. That's part of remembering. But I want to talk about uh, another aspect of remembering that we don't often think about. It's not cognitive. It's there, but we don't think about it so much as this first concept of remembering. And uh, that second concept really has to do not so much with us remembering, but another human need. You see, human beings have a need also to be remembered. You need to be remembered. You need to be remembered in a special way, not in a superficial way, but a special way to have somebody or some people, or a group of people, you need, don't you, to have people remember you. None of us are stable enough to say, we're going to make it on my own. You need to have a special people or special ones to remember you. That hit me up about uh, the side of the head when I was grieving the loss of my wife. During that deep, deep time of grief, I needed her, and one of the things that was the most surprised is, is 
the question that arose in the midst of that. Of course, it's obvious, you know, you lose a spouse and you miss them and, uh, because you need them. But the, the thing that haunted me, oftentimes I would think is, well, in the midst of my pain, I'm in agony and sorrow and so on and so forth, I asked the question, well, does she remember me now? That haunted me. It really haunted me. Here I was miserable and lonely and, and like a person cut in half with a raw edge just burning all the time. I just missed her so much. And doggone it, she was up in heaven having fun. And I asked over and over again, well, I, wonder, I wonder if she knows. In the Bible, I didn't get really good answers, to be honest with you. Help that pain. God delivered me over time in a different way. But at the time, I didn't have good Bible verses that helped me. Because she was in glory, right? She's not omniscient. She's not God. Only God is the one who knows everything. So I didn't see any Bible verses that convinced me that she knew what I was going through. Only God is omniscient. And I only needed God, really. I couldn't find a Bible verse where she needed me like she did when she was here in this world needing a husband. You know, this, uh, this whole thing about a, a woman having desire for a husband, that's part of the curse, isn't it, in Genesis 3? You women are cursed to desire your husband. Well, that was over with when she went up to heaven. And I didn't feel so good about that. I wanted her to desire me. And uh, I wanted to have a deep conversation with someone. Well, I don't think she was really interested in talking to me. There was a contrast going there in my mind. Look at who she could talk to in heaven. She could talk with God himself. She could see him face to face. She could talk with Adam. She could talk with Eve. She could talk with Ruth. She could talk with Esther, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, with David, with Solomon, with Daniel, with Peter, Paul, all the disciples. She could be having conversations with all of those people and compare them to me. I'm not exactly a great conversationalist with all kinds of amazing things going on in my life, huh? Uh, and that bothered me. Now the point that I bring all that up is not for you to feel sorry for you. It's just to, to say that it hit me really hard of how much I needed to be remembered. And I think you do too. Those of you who've lost spouses like I have or lost children like I've had or other significant losses, there's some times when you just need somebody to remember you. And that's why we reach out to others when they hurt. I was reminded of that again just a couple of weeks ago when I was on vacation. I was driving to family in Arkansas, went across Tennessee on Interstate 40. If you've ever taken that drive before, you know that Interstate 40 takes you right down through the downtown of Memphis on your way to Arkansas. And as I was downtown, driving through downtown Memphis, I got this view, which is on the screen. St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. That's what, not what stood out for me. Yeah, I knew the building was the hospital. The thing that stood out for me was the name underneath it, Danny Thomas, founder. It's another indication to me is that humans have a need to be remembered. Danny Thomas founded that hospital, gave a lot. And there's probably many of you who know him, but probably many more who don't know him. But he was somebody who needed to be remembered enough or wanted to be remembered enough that he wrote into his giving or his work or whatever. I assume it was him. 
that he should be remembered by putting his name on his buildings and lots of other things with St. Jude's. Now, let me say, I don't, I don't think it's bad. It's either right nor wrong that you put your name on a building. Uh, but the point that, I, that struck me at the time is human beings want to be and need to be remembered. One more illustration of this comes in my pastoral years as I was ministering to people. And uh, oftentimes you minister to people as they serve their family members who are in decline, suffering from some kind of disease. And of course, when we're struggling to take care of our family members who are failing, it hurts. We hurt for them, and we struggle with them. But I came to notice over the years as I was working with different kinds of people with different kinds of disease, I noticed that there was a, a particular group that seemed to have an additional pain as they cared for their failing loved ones. And it was those who were ministering to loved ones who were suffering from Alzheimer's. And those family members who were suffering from Alzheimer's communicated that they had an additional pain that hurt them. And I've got a, a video clip that shows you an example of what that pain is actually like. Let's take a look at it. An emotional moment in Washington today where Ashley Campbell told senators what Alzheimer's is doing to it her father. That's because she happens to be the daughter of the legendary singer Glenn Campbell, who's in the grip of the disease and has stopped performing. I think a person's life is comprised of memories, and that's exactly what this disease takes away from you. Like a memory of my dad taking me fishing in Flagstaff when I was a little girl, or playing banjo with my dad while he plays guitar. Now when I play banjo with my dad, um, it's getting harder for him to follow along. And it's getting harder for him to recall my name. It's hard to come to the realization that someday my dad might look at me and I will be absolutely nothing to him. Glenn Campbell's daughter, Ashley, testifying on Capitol Hill today. A lot of pain there, right? Because human beings need to be remembered. Do you have that need to be remembered? I suspect you do. I don't think you're any different than me. Um, and uh, so it's important for us to consider as God reaches into our lives, how does he reach in our lives to meet that particular need as well? And it's that need that I believe that Holy Communion reaches out and God delivers to us to meet that deepest kind of need to be remembered by someone. Because remember, I told you earlier that this short little phrase, do this in remembrance of me, remember how I reworded it, do this in my remembrance, that makes it more ambiguous. There's two possible meanings or two possible translations to that phrase when you'd write it out in the way of the Greek. The first one is the, of the two translations is the most common one. It's the one we normally default into. It's this uh, translation that talks about remembering the past. Do this in order for you to remember me. And that's true. We need to have help or assistance to remember, particularly this most important event in all of history where God sent His Son into the world and that Son came into the world and lived a holy life. 
And then at the end of his life, he allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed and he died a substitutionary death and he rose again on the third day. Human beings need to remember and we need things to box us in so that we continue to remember because we're like sheep who stray and it's all so easy for us to say, oh, I'm not going to remember that anymore. And Holy Communion helps us do that. So that's a possible translation, but uh, there's another one. A second translation, and that possible, second possible translation is this. Do this in my remembrance, or do this in order for me, that is God, to remember. Wow, that's strange, isn't it? And the question is, is does that have any relevance to this thing called Holy Communion? And I'd like to propose to you that it has everything to do with Holy Communion. Now the reason I want to do that or the way I want to show that and demonstrate that to you is to dig into the biblical understanding of remembering. And in order to do that we need to take a whirlwind tour into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, zakar is the Hebrew term for remembering. And throughout the Bible the concept of remembering really has more than a fuller sense than just this cognitive activity of stored up memories that we can recall from time. Re, uh, remembering for us is that cognitive activity. When we hear the term remember, that's what we think of. Okay, remembering is looking into the past and pulling out of our minds those events in the past that somehow are stored in our gray matter in chemical form. And then in some way what we do is we push the YouTube button in our brain and turn on those memories and produce a digital image or chemical image in our mind. That's the cognitive remembering of the past. But in the Bible, that term remembering of events or everyday happenings in the past is, is part of it, but that it's a much richer term than that. It's much fuller. That not only talks about what happened in the past, but it also talks about how there's a, a focused moment where I remember you right now in a special way, in a focused and a targeted way. I don't remember everybody. I look at you and I can think about all of you and remember all of you, but remembering biblically is, is picking out somebody and say, I'm going to give some focused attention to you. And then there's a second aspect. There's an and to it, and that and is, is that every time remembering is brought up in the Bible, there's always some kind of response that flows out of the person who does this focused remembering. The two go together. Focused remembering and some kind of response. And uh, oftentimes, this remembering is done by God. Let's take a look. We're going to go on a whirlwind tour. One of the earliest uses of the term remember was in Genesis. Genesis 8, verse 1. If you'd like to open up your Bibles, you can do that. The situation is as Noah's in the ark. They've been in the ark for 150 days. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. After 150 days, can you imagine what that boat was like? And when they were in there, then something happened. It says, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now let's think about that for a moment. First of all, God remembered now, isn't that interesting? Did God forget? And all of a sudden, he's thinking about something else, and then he comes back to the point where he says, oh, yeah, 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 I forgot about them. 
But it happened that uh, they were floating on the water and God looked down and said, well, this is kind of boring. There's only one boat down there, small handful of people and a bunch of animals that are caged in this boat. They don't even have a motor. It was that God looked down there and said, okay, there's got to be something more exciting than this. And he goes to the archangels and says, what do you guys got going on up here in heaven? Can I look at that? And in the meantime, did he forget them? No, he didn't. But it says that God remembered. And he remembered in this focused kind of way, special kind of way, and which led to something beyond that, some kind of response. When he remembered, it says, he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. God remembers and he does something. Genesis chapter 9, let's go. That's another time, very shortly afterwards. The setting is, as the waters receded, the boat went on the ground, everybody got out of the boat, God tells Moses or tells Noah, be fruitful and multiply, he's talking to them, and in that context, God makes them a promise, a covenant. And it's, uh, that covenant is recorded in uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood, never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God makes that promise. But then we go on to verse 13. And it's there on the screen. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind and never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Now think about that for a few moments. God puts the rainbow in the sky to help people remember that covenant that he's not going to flood. That's for you. The rainbow is for you. But notice the text here again. Who else is the rainbow for? God says, I too will look at that rainbow, and when I look at the rainbow, I too will remember my covenant. Have you ever thought about that? God put the rainbow in the sky so that he will remember. That puts a whole different spin on the word remember, isn't it? Again, because did God forget his covenant? Did he forget he said he was never going to flood the world again? No, 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 no. Uh-uh. But he put this rainbow in the sky kind of like a a post-it note in the sky for God. And every time I see it, I'm going to go back and I'm going to remember that covenant in a special way. And then he rolls out in a response and his response is to do nothing, which is a response, right? He could destroy, but he says, I withhold that destruction by a flood. Let's keep moving on very quickly. Exodus chapter 2, hundreds of years later. Situation is the, Egyptian, or the uh, Israelites, God's people, are enslaved in Egypt. Abraham has come and gone. Isaac has come and gone. Jacob has come and gone. Joseph and his brothers have come and gone. The Pharaoh that knew Joseph and treated the people kindly was gone. We have a new Pharaoh, a bigger nation, and eventually what happens is the Egyptians forgot that they should take care of God's people, and instead they enslaved them. So that's the situation. And uh, Moses was born, and Moses was educated and raised. He thought he was the deliverer, but his own people turned against him and chased him out of the country. And Moses says, well, I guess I was wrong on that one. So he went out, and he was living the life of a shepherd out in the wilderness. That's the setting. 
And uh, during this time here, it says uh, Moses, uh, it says the Israelites are in Egypt. And let's look, and uh, beginning with verse uh, 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So the people cried to God as they should. And what happened? God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and the response and was concerned about them. And was concerned about them. God remembered. And then he did something. And he was concerned. And then what happens in Exodus chapter 3 is uh, you remember the story. The next thing God does is he appears in a burning bush that isn't consumed. And that shepherd Moses is out in the wilderness and he says, I think God is up to something and God was. We'll keep going. Exodus 32. Now we got something different. It's Moses this time. God working with Moses and the people after they fled out of Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai. Moses and God is up in the in, uh, on top of Mount Sinai. And uh, now we have something new. This time what we've got is got somebody asking God to remember. And Moses is the one. It's recorded in Exodus 32. Things aren't going well. God is up on top. Moses is with them. The people are getting impatient. So they come up with this crazy idea. We're going to take all of our gold. We're going to melt it down. Give it to Aaron. We're going to form a calf, a golden calf. And this golden calf will be worshipped because this golden calf was the thing that brought us out of Egypt. Craziness. And God looks down from the mountaintop and he says, Okay, Moses, this is it. These are a stiff-necked people and I, I am ultimately just, just fed up with them. And I'm going to destroy them. And Moses comes to the rescue of the people. And uh, this is what he says in Exodus 32. Follow along. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he threatened. Moses turned to God and said, would you remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and remember the promise to them? And the reason, Moses did, reason that, he, that he did that, Moses did that, because he knew that if God remembered, that God would respond. And sure enough, God did. It was a great thing for Moses to ask God to remember. One more. We're going to go all the way to the New Testament. One last person. Not a big person, not a great person, a thief on a cross who all his life had turned away from God, but at the last moment as he was hanging there on the cross right next to Jesus, he realized who Jesus was and he understood this concept of remembering. And on that cross, he said this simple statement, Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom. Now, why was he asking Jesus to remember him? So he can go back, you know, and say, wow, Jesus, didn't we have a good time hanging there on the cross? You know, chest bump, fist bump, all that kind of stuff, right? Huh? Is that the reason? Oh, no. He was looking for something. He was looking for something, and he knew that if Jesus remembered him, Jesus just might help him. And Jesus did, right? He didn't remember him in the future. He remembered him at that moment. Huh? And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. He remembered, and Jesus delivered and did something. That's our whirlwind tour. And now we come to Monday, Thursday evening. The night in which Jesus was betrayed. He knew he was going to die. And he comes and he gathers his disciples together and he institutes this special thing. And he takes bread and he breaks it. He takes wine, says, drink it. He says, take this and do this in my remembrance. We're going to talk more about that next week. Because you see, I believe that in this setting of Holy Communion, God is doing both. Oh yeah, we need to take communion because it reminds us of that event in the past. But could it just be, could it just be, that God also invites us to do that so in that remembering of what Jesus did that we might feel free to ask God at that moment to come and remember with us. And isn't that what Holy Communion is all about? This special communion between God and His people when they gather together at a particular moment and everyone remembers all at once what He did and that He remembers me. We'll talk about that next week. But before I go, I need to ask one more question. Because I don't want to leave you hanging too much and... Who knows what happens between now and then? I have to come and ask you a question. Do you want to be remembered? And as we segue into the message next week, I have to ask that question because in that question, if you say yes, and I assume there's hands here that would go up, even, even maybe Lutheran ones. Us Lutherans don't raise our hands, but I think I'd raise my hand on this one. Yeah, I'd like God to remember me. I need him to. I suspect you need him to as well. But as you say, okay, I'm going to ask God to remember me. Is there any basis upon which that you would think that if I ask God to remember me, that God will treat me well when he does that? You have to answer that question too. Because you know God one day is going to come back and he's going to remember everybody in this special focused way. Even those who do not know him and do not believe in his son. And when they come to him, they're going to be standing in their own righteousness and God will remember them and he will respond, but it will not go well with their souls. And it could be you. So I have to come back and ask that other question. If you want God to remember you, is there any basis upon which you believe that if he does, it's going to go well with you? Is that basis upon... Uh, which you hope for that based upon your behavior? How'd you do this past week? God says, love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. How'd you do with loving your neighbor as yourself? How are your words this past week? Did you keep that tongue under control? How did you treat those people next to you? Were you patient with them and kind and loving toward them or impatient? 
Did you covet what they had? Were you jealous of them and respond negatively because of that? How are your thoughts life this past week? Was it good? Did you respect your husband? Did you love your wife? Did you care for your kids like you should have? Tell me, have you got any basis in your life, what you did this past week, to believe that God, if He remembers you, He would treat you well and treat you good, pour out His grace into your life? Is there any reason to believe that God would do that on the basis of your life? How did you do with relating to God? Did you love to gather in His presence? Did you love to read the Word? Did you gather in extended times of prayer, showing Him that you loved Him in that way with this sweet fellowship that you can have with God on a day-by-day basis? How did you do in that area of your life? Got any basis to think that if God remembers you, he'll treat you well. I'm here to tell you if the basis upon which you hope that God will treat you well when he remembers you is, is your behavior, you're in big trouble. And I'm in big trouble. Because there's no reason to believe it. If we fail just even once, we deserve to be cast off. But this is where the good news comes in. Because there's another basis for which you can hope That if God remembers you, that he will respond with his grace. And let me end with a story that demonstrates it. And the band can come forward at this time, the worship team, uh, as I speak this story. In gratitude, um, it was in gratitude that prompted an old man to visit an old broken down pier on the eastern side of the coast of eastern coast of the state of Florida. And every Friday evening, this old, gray-haired, bushy-eyebrowed man stooped over, would journey to the end of this broken pier. And he'd carry with him a bucket filled with shrimp. And he would take the shrimp at the end of the pier every Friday, and he would toss the shrimp out to feed the seagulls. His name was Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. And he was an old man, But he was doing that remembering something happened during World War II when he was in the army. You see, he was in uh, the army as a courier, and he was assigned on one particular occasion in October to carry a message to General Douglas MacArthur. And in order to get to MacArthur, they put him on a B-17 flying fortress airplane and flew him across the South Pacific so that he could deliver the message. But uh, the plane got lost, and it was outside of radio contact. And uh, eventually, uh, they ran out of fuel and had to ditch the airplane. All of the crew and Captain Rickenbacker ended up in rafts that were nine feet long, five feet wide, being rammed by sharks that were even longer than those rafts. The heat was so bad. The sun was so oppressive. And uh, the biggest enemy of them all on that seaside was that they were starving. Their rations lasted about eight days. Seawater, either they consumed them or the seawater ruined them. They ended up being on those boats for 30 days, those rafts. But uh, the Captain Rickenbacker talk, uh, wrote in his journal about it, and let me read it, that'll work out a little bit better. It says this, Cherry, that is the B-17 pilot, Captain William Cherry, read the service that afternoon, and uh, we finished with a prayer for deliverance and a hymn of praise. There was some talk, but it tapered off in the oppressive heat. With my hat pulled down over my eyes to keep out some of the glare, I dozed off. And then he goes on a little bit later. Something landed on my head. I knew it was a seagull. I don't know how I knew, I just knew. Everyone else knew too. 
No one said a word, but peering out from under my hat brim without moving my head, I could see the expression on their faces. They were staring at that gall. The gall meant food, if I could catch it. And the rest, as they say, is history. Captain Eddie indeed did catch the gall, and it they sacrificed its life and took its flesh and ate what they could and then they took the intestines and they used the intestines for fish bait and they caught fish and it was just enough to help them survive until they were rescued. And from that moment on, Captain Eddie remembered and that led into a response. That's why every Friday evening until 1973 when he was a stooped over, bushy haired, white haired guy, he would go to the end of the pier and in gratitude, take the shrimp and feed the seagulls in thanksgiving for that one seagull who on that day long past gave its life without a struggle. And I want to tell you there's a better story. It's a better story because you see you have a basis upon which to ask God to remember you and know that it will go well. For you see, there was another one who came into this world and without a struggle gave his life so that you might experience grace of God. It was God's Son. It was your Savior. It was Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can stand and we can sing and we can remember and we can ask God, God, would you remember me? and then show me your grace. Let's stand because God's grace is all that we need.